Cinematologists podcast. Long way back. In this episode, Neil talks to Brett and Simon Harvey of O-Region about their third feature film, Long Way Back, which was recently released on streaming platforms following a successful UK cinema tour in late 2022. The conversation covers their career to date, their filmmaking process, their influences, and how they make their work in the challenging conditions of Cornish and UK independent film culture. Elsewhere, Neil and Dario talk about recent films they've seen, including The Caretakers for an upcoming episode, and the recent Chilean release, The Cow Who Sang a Song Into the Future. In response to the interview, they talk about ambition in independent film, some of the challenges facing exhibition, what makes regional cinema, and also Neil sets the record straight about his relationship to Damien Chazelle's Whiplash. On with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me down the line, I'm delighted to say, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hey, hey, Neil. How are you? You doing well? I'm doing okay. Yeah, I'm hanging in there. Easter's <laughs> on the horizon. It is. I'm about, it looks like at the same time, we're moving into our new house, which nice. is exciting. So yeah, it's, uh, it's it's a nightmare, but it's it's there's an end in sight. What about you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of like waiting for for Easter big big style. Um it was nice to walk walk home. I I just thought I came home in lieu of doing this podcast because I needed to kind of clear my head. I was going to tape in the office, but I was just like, no, I need to get out of there. Um and uh, there was just a really nice sort of light sky. The first time I've sort of walked home with the sun out. You know, it's usually been dark or pissing it down or both. Um so it was just nice to feel like yeah, there may be a bit a little bit of spring in the air um and yeah generally just very very busy so it's nice to talk to you and talk films and not have that kind of in your mind for uh, an hour or so absolutely um you we've had, we've had the weather check there which is good glad that the weather's <laughs> okay um and yeah let's let's talk about some films we've got um a nice interview uh, in the middle uh but before we get to that let's um yeah let's sort of cover some stuff that we've been watching because you've you've seen something recently that um is a handy trail for an upcoming episode yeah so um i'm currently working on this episode called demons of the mind um and it's a collaboration with um a couple of guys who've done a project on the relationship between um cinema and psycho psychoanalysis but not i mean obviously there's a massive connection between cinema and psychoanalysis but it's an understudied area within that, which is not focused on what films mean psychoanalytically. So in the sort of psychoanalytic film theory vein, it's not around that. It's it's actually about industrial collaborations between the discipline of psychoanalysis or what they call the sci sciences and films and filmmakers and film studios, particularly in the post-war period. Um, 
and it's just been really nice to to think about how to shape that episode and I've kind of hinged it on it's going to be a, a, an audio documentary more than just an interview so I taped a long interview with them but what I'm doing is writing a narrative writing a, a, a kind of script documentary narrative in that sense to, to string all of their quotes together but then interrelate them with um, clips from some of the films that they mentioned. So it's been really interesting to go back to the sort of 50s and 60s and look at these sort of problem films or social uh, social conscious films um, around both the psychiatric p- p- um, profession, but then how they deal with, you know, um, institutions and with patients in, v- in various different ways. Um, you know, and, and probably there's so many examples of that in contemporary films. I mean, I suppose One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is one of the most obvious ones and you can think of something like girl interrupted mm, yeah um in you know in, in i mean both of those are not new films of course and but th- th- there are newer examples of that but they're, they're one of two of the most well-known ones is sort of hollywood more contemporary history um but it's interesting how so many tropes of those films you can find in in these earlier ones and i just watched one the other day which is going to feature called the caretakers which is directed by a guy called Hal Bartlett and stars Ro- uh, Robert Stack as one of these kind of goodly psychiatrists. Because I think in the sort of 40s and 50s, there were sort of tropes of the psychiatrist being a kind of mad scientist type, you know, to drive the narrative in this sense. And, th- and this is a real clear um, thematic construction of this character, of a psychiatrist who is trying to use his new way of doing psychiatry his sort of new research to make patients lives and experiences better and coming up against the system which in this case was a head nurse in very much in the vein of nurse ratchet but played by joan crawford and uh yeah just a really interesting example of the way that that, uh, a sociological film has been produced with a real sense of it has a purpose behind it in and you know, in terms of the the making of the film, there was this collaboration between a, a, a psychiatric professional who acted as a consultant on the film and how that finds it, its way into the depictions of both the institution and the characters, you know, involved. So, yeah, really looking forward to, to kind of finishing that and putting it out there. I'm hoping it's going to be the next one. It might be a few weeks to get that done because it's quite a, a heavy edit. Um, but yeah, really interested to see what you make of it, Neil, and the audience when we uh, when it goes out. Yeah, really excited to um, to hear that, hear what you've been up to, and um, take that and get that out into the world, uh, and see some of the films as well mentioned. Um, I remember the list coming through originally, and yeah, kind of really interesting titles on there. So that sounds that sounds great. Um, not really a future episode, but. One we hope to do is on Chilean cinema at some point because we're both big lovers of it. Um, and uh, there's a new Chilean film out uh, this Friday called The Cow Who Sang a Song Into the Future, which uh, I was sent a screener of. Yeah, what a title. Wow. Um, still don't really know. What a title that is. Yeah, still don't really know what, what the title <laughs> refers to. Uh, there are cows in it. Um, okay. It's a... <laughs> <laughs> Do they look to the future is the question. They're looking, but I couldn't tell where. <laughs> um, okay. Mostly at the river. Yeah, it's a it's a eco-magic realist film. And uh, yeah, it's a really wonderful film. It's about a 
woman played by uh, Mia Maestro, who I know from a TV show called The Strain, but she's sort of been in Hannibal and and various bits and pieces. And she plays uh, a woman who has okay. It's, it's kind of suggested sort of killed herself, and she comes back sort of ten years later to her her sort of husband's farm and um, the. The, the her estranged daughter is sort of is brought back when her, when the the husband sort of seizes his dead wife and uh, has a heart attack. This is very early; it's not really a spoiler. And then the kind of the family is reunited, and it's about a dysfunctional family, kind of being sort of um, uh, sort of mended or you know sort of healed, I suppose, you know, um, by sort of the return of the sort of the, the matriarch. Who's a very troubled and complex character, as suggested by the you know the fact that she's she's killed herself sort of ten years earlier. And alongside that, there's this kind of fable about yeah the planet, particularly around rivers and pollution. And the the family they run this kind of farm, and a lot of the tension in the family is about changing the way they do things for the planet and for the sustainability. And sure, it's a really yeah it's a really quiet film. It's got some really interesting characters. Um, really interesting trans character, um, the 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 sort of the grandson um, who has a really interesting relationship with his grandmother who he's never met, um, and it just plays out really beautifully. And it reminded me of one of my favourite Chilean directors in in part, which is Raúl Ruiz. You know, it's a very poetic film. Right. It's very quiet. It's very interested in, you know, just navigating these difficult situations and what's what's really there's lots of things that are really nice about it one of them is that it's not in santiago so it's in kind of rural southern chile so it's a kind of chile that doesn't get shown on on screen very often and it's being released i think around world water day there's sort of special screenings around the country in cinemas to kind of highlight some of the some of the issues in the film um one of the great things about it is that the the, the patriarch the father is played by alfredo castro who for fans of pablo lorraine yeah We'll know he was Tony Monero. and one of my favorite in, actors. Yeah, he's just you know he's absolutely fabulous, and it is you know the it's a film that I think with a lot of magic realist and you know ecosophical films, they can sometimes get sort of weighed down by you know the the quirkiness or the messaging you know, but but because the performances are so good, particularly the relationship between sort of Castro and, and Maestro, um, and the daughter played by Leonor Varela, like. It just really, really works as a drama, and the performances are fab. Um, so it sort of has a lot of classic tropes, you know, man versus nature, the reluctant homecoming, you know, disconnection from the natural world. But they don't feel, they don't feel sort of too heavy-handed. Um, it's a really lovely film. So that's out in cinemas on Friday with sort of special Q and A screenings around World Water Day. Uh, well worth checking out. Sure, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things I think to come out of Berlin was how many films that you could place broadly in this category of eco-cinema. I think definitely, you know, if we do a Chilean cinema episode, I'm always up for that. But something on what eco-cinema is and getting somebody in to sort of talk about that, I think would be uh, a good idea. Because I think that that we've almost sort of seemed to have gone past this idea of we need to make documentaries that point out climate change. Because it that yeah, yeah. clearly hasn't worked in a political sense at all. You know, every, everybody knows. I mean, there was an article at The Guardian just this morning. It's like, this is your last warning, <laughs> you know. And, you know, I don't want to go down this road, but me and you have talked an awful lot about the, the sort of uh, the notion of the future and how that 
defines what decisions you make right now in terms of your own lives and stuff. Um, but I think that, that this sense of almost a, a more philosophical, um, a more, um, yeah, whether it's poetic realist, but a more sort of reflective sense of the relationship to nature, I think is where filmmakers are starting to go because it, it seems like on a hiding to nothing, just pointing out that, you know, we're warming and the seas are warming and there's, you know, there's ecological disasters of every different type you can imagine all over the place. And mm. yeah, wh where are we getting with that? I don't know, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's that's fair. I mean, this speak, this was at Berlin last year and Sundance, right. you know, places yeah, yeah, where yeah. a lot of this, a lot of these films are, are sort of popping up uh, on the festival circuit. And yeah, I think, you know, it, it's a film that tries to look at what's possible on a local level, you know, at the level of family, at the level of, you know, generational difference and sort of, you know, almost taking the polar opposite approach of rather than throwing out into the world and saying corporations have to change, it's saying, well, yeah. that doesn't work. So They're how can we approach it. this? And yeah. And of course, the drama and the tragedy and the, the, the tension comes out of the fact that there's so many different viewpoints on how to approach these things within families, within, you know, so there's a kind of, there is a hope in it you know but it's also it's not a it's not a naive hope you know it's it has lots of moments where the the task of actually convincing older generations or even people across various ideological lines to join forces is laid bare which i think is yeah makes it quite resonant yeah yeah for sure for sure so maybe yeah let's get on to the um the main portion of the episode so this is some this is an interview that you put together on a film that has an association with uh, your film lab down there in uh, you, you know your personal film lab that you've got down there down in in Cornwall yeah my own little bespoke uh film uh <laughs> film production art. um yeah don't don't don't, don't don't be fooled. I don't actually think that, uh, listeners. Um, but no, it is a Sound Image Cinema Lab uh, production or co-production with O Region. So we had an episode on Wilderness, um, which was the film that I wrote and produced uh, way back um, and was released in, uh, in 2021, which is when we did our episode on it. And I've sort of conducted an interview with Brett Harvey and Simon Harvey from O Region, who made what was the second film in the kind of filmmaker in residence program through the lab so this was a project which we supported and funded through the the lab and the university here um in the same model as wilderness so yeah kind of supporting a feature films production with a sort of predominantly student crew um shot here in cornwall and it was shot in yeah 20 2019 um and then released released in cinemas late last year and then released digitally uh, now it's available to rent now um as of the last couple of weeks so I, I wanted to sort of talk to Simon Brett as yeah as as people who are kind of very active in the Cornish film uh industry and community about their film and their filmmaking um and yeah we had a nice a nice in-person conversation which was really nice because obviously a lot of the stuff we do now by necessity is is remote so it was nice to be in a room and just just having a conversation and hopefully people see that we you know we just had a conversation I mean I've talked to them a lot about this stuff and wanted to try and approach it rather than Q&A just 
you know just a, a, a sort of conversation about what they do and, and and about this film in particular so yeah that was um that was a nice morning great yeah and and it was just nice to to hear those guys because obviously i know them from working down in uh, in in falmouth um and some really interesting stuff that comes out of the the conversation that you have that just you know it made me reflect on my time in cornwall and and you know at, at times i don't think i made the most of that if, I, if i'm being honest um i mean it was one of those things where it was my first academic job so i just felt like i could kind of i wasn't in a position to be able to sort of dictate what i could and couldn't do especially early on i mean later on i sort of had more of a managerial role and and but you know, and, and it was interesting to say uh, there was a little bit of subtext about how, you know, Cornwall's great, but also it's got its problems in terms of a filmmaking community. So maybe we can sort of uh, name some of those things that they they didn't, or at least sort of go a little bit deeper into that now that I'm out of the picture and it doesn't really matter. But yeah, it was a great interview. So uh, thanks for, thanks for uh, putting it together. Absolute pleasure. So let's get to that now. This is me talking with the writer-director, Brett Harvey, and the producer Simon Harvey about their film Long Way Back. This is going to be a very long trip if we don't talk to each other. Okay. We'll just do this then. Brett and Sai from O Region, the team behind Long Way Back. Thank you for having us. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, do you need us to say our names before each one of us speaks? Because we do sound quite similar. Uh, no need, Brett. That was <laughs> really lovely. Um, so hopefully, hopefully that's enough. Um, yeah, it's really lovely to see you um, at what is not not really the end of the journey, uh, yet another yet another stage in a very long journey. So <laughs> the film has just come out on streaming. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, how, how are you feeling about it? It's sort of bittersweet, I suppose, because it, it's not the end, but it, it feels like a significant milestone. So we've still got screenings and we'll be doing Q and A's and things like that, but it's certainly, it sort of feels like it's 
it does feel like an ending of sorts, I suppose. You're giving it out on a wide platform. And, <clears throat> you know, I've been living with the film for so long that it feels sort of strange to not have it in my life anymore. Even though it is still in my life, technically. Yeah. And you felt that it was in your life right up until whatever the, the computer presses send. Yeah, well, you, you're always sort of heading towards the next... Th this, was, this, this was always sort of like the big target, I suppose. This is the biggest release it'll get. Mm. So now that all your energy gets, focuses in on the date it gets released, and then it gets released, and you go, oh, that, I guess that's kind of it now. Mm. Handing it over to the world. I suppose the next... <clears throat> so we're in between, so it came out a week ago on to buy, to purchase online, and then next Monday it comes out for rental. So that's the one that I'm hoping we can push a little bit in terms of that loads of people were asking when we did the cinema release, and obviously we were hamstrung by how many cinemas we got it to, so we went out to about 28 cinemas across the UK, but we had people from, friends from abroad who've seen it on social media or friends in, we didn't get a screening in London unfortunately, so lots of people saying where can we see it, where can we see it, so, so it'd be really nice to get it out to those, those guys. And then like Brett said, we've got a few more, we're now um, not doing cinemas, but we're doing, uh, we're doing an open air screening in the summer down in Penlee in Penzance, and, and, and we're putting it out to the film clubs and of which there's quite a few around Cornwall, so we're going to be doing that. So we'll still be getting it out to audiences in that respect, but it kind of feels like it will, it's going to look after itself now, mm. and it means we can pretty much shift our emphasis onto whatever the next one is. Yeah, which I did want to kind of come back to, not yeah. in specific, but yeah. in terms of direction. Um, <clears throat> so the, you sort of mentioned there the tour that you did and the film clubs, that's, that's your model, isn't it? That you're kind of comfortable with that. Mm. So, you know... How has it felt with this new edition? Because I guess you know you've you've done really well with the films in terms of like DVD release, particularly for Brown Willie. Um, but this, does it feel like it, yeah this this is something new in terms of like an unknown that you haven't encountered before? Because you know the, a lot of that activity in terms of the touring and the film clubs is places that you're very familiar with. Do you, uh, do you mean in terms of the the online release or just yeah the, the online release? yeah well I want to talk specifically about the cinema release in a bit but but just yeah just this new online it's out there in a way that maybe your films haven't we, in the past it's the first time we've managed to get it onto so many platforms mm. um, and that's been working with Pat Kelman at Six Hundred Six Distribution so he's got a lot of those connections so he's been helping us to do that so we did we did an online release with Brown Willie. Uh, but that, it was very much on our own steam and we put it out through just one or two platforms mm. but we didn't get it onto the big ones really um, and Brown Willie's still ticking over isn't it bit by bit yeah. you know, we still get the odd rental and a little bit dropping in here and there but yeah certainly this is this is exciting in terms of getting it to a wider audience potentially yeah. in that respect because the other the other two films were mostly so Weekend Retreat and Brown Willie were both released on Vimeo so people can rent or buy on Vimeo digitally but that's <clears throat> not as many people have access to that platform or are aware of that platform. So it's kind of exciting in this respect to go, it's on loads of platforms now, so it's much more accessible to people. Yeah. yeah. People don't sort of seem to believe it's released unless it's on iTunes or Amazon, yeah. you know, the ones that everyone knows, which it now is, which is great. Yeah, it, it, it does come with a marker, doesn't it? Of yeah. like, oh, you've actually made a film now. Yeah, yeah. it's legitimate. <laughs> legitimate. Yeah, yeah. Which is strange because obviously, you know, I guess for people of our age making films, 
the, the legitimacy would be cinemas. Yeah. And that's the desire is that it's seen in that space. So it's interesting that, yeah, that's almost shifted to, to digital. Yeah, we didn't believe that was going to be the, you know, even we were talking about streaming as far back as Weekend Retreat, which was 11 years ago now, mm. and streaming platforms and talking to Denzel, and Denzel was obsessed with getting on streamers. And, but yeah, it didn't feel that the shift has definitely happened in the last mm. 10 years that people now expect that. And that's where most people consume, don't they, is on streaming platforms. Yeah, but it has been in cinemas and you did do a tour with it. What was. What was that like, and what was the, you know, what were the differences around the country, and what were the similarities in terms of the experiences that you encountered? I mean, it was great. This is this is the most cinemas we've ever got a film into. I think Brown Willie was on ten screens, was it? Yeah, and that's was, very much southwest based. Yeah, and this was twenty eight, and was all over the, the shop. So it went up as far as Oban in Scotland and Penrith. Lake District and you know sort of really Oxford it sort of went all over the place which was great and the difference was so Brown Willie we got one uh, two screenings in the watershed in Bristol whereas this did a full week's run there mm. so and in Cornwall it ran for about, about a month all in yeah. so it was just there was it was just much wider than we had we had previously managed to achieve which was which was great in terms of similarities it was really it, it, the film has a particular pace and energy and it and that kind of worked everywhere really so we did Q&A's after loads of the screenings so Brett and I did lots of sitting around so we'd do an intro and then we would sit in the cinema we, we didn't really watch it at all during that September <laughs> run I didn't and then I, I was working in Scotland so I was near Penrith and I went to Penrith and I thought and it was a really gloomy day so I did the intro and I thought oh, I'm just going to watch it and just see and it was quite nerve-wracking because obviously we didn't know anyone in that cinema there was about 40 people there on mm. a Sunday afternoon great. but it was it was it was great watching it and 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 yeah and it just sort of validated it for me watching it with that audience and I did a Q&A afterwards there and it just sort of it it, had a, it has a particular energy and it sort of works under people's skin a little bit and then by the end of the film pe once people see it in its entirety people was yeah it always seemed to when it touched a nerve with people it seemed to really touch a nerve with people and there was a lot of really interesting conversation that came up from it afterwards I suppose just sort of picking up on that it was interesting the film has a very, very deliberate pace, and that pace is set in the first 15 minutes. It's, it's slow, and you're not getting all the information from the characters, and the film expects an audience to do the work. And that was always by design, and that's sort of the beauty of making something independently, is you can do that. And it's, to me, I watch the film and think, I can sort of hear the notes I would get if this had been funded traditionally and the notes would all be around sort of going an audience won't have the patience an audience won't do the work and it was just that amazing thing of going to screenings and going no audiences do have the patience they will do the work yeah they are way more interested in in meeting a film on its own terms and I think that there's there's a lot of it's there's it feels like people don't have faith in audiences anymore and actually the thing that we learned from the screenings and especially from the Q&As is you should have faith in your audience. You can trust an audience to go with the film. I mean, there's some really fascinating, because the film is, you know, Brett said it doesn't give answers early, it doesn't give all the information early, and arguably it doesn't give in all the information 
through the whole film either so it sort of leaves a lot of space for people to interpret stuff and again by design and and the script as you all remember probably from reading it did answer a lot more through the making of it and the editing of it bits got taken out deliberately Um, but it was sort of yeah really fascinating how and some of the theories that people came up with and some of the readings of it were really interesting and not necessarily what I think I thought or we thought but no but equally valid you know it was great it must have been gratifying to be in the cinemas with that kind of response given a frustrating festival run where I think what you're saying there Brett is 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 what I sort of see at festivals now where before that was the space where audience would be trusted and films would be trusted whereas now it feels like almost festivals are thinking our audiences won't come to this. Whereas, so they've almost shifted, particularly independent festivals, from more interesting, daring work into something much safer. Whereas that doesn't feel like it's their job. You know, they've almost assumed what cinema audiences will do. But as as, as the tour has shown, that's that's just not the case. Well, it was sort of interesting with festivals. I mean, we we were slightly victims of circumstance because. We were trying to get the film into festivals during probably the most oversubscribed year in film festival history because of the pandemic, people were holding their films back. So we were trying to get it into festivals at a time where everyone was trying to get their films yeah. screened. Um, it was disappointing. There was one festival that I thought we were going to get into. I won't, I won't name them. And their response was they, they were only interested in films that were optimistic and happy yeah, because of the post-pandemic world. And... That kind of stung a bit because you go, well, I sort of, I don't think the film is happy, but I think the film ends on a note of optimism to me. So, depending on how you read it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. and it and it, that was disappointing because you go, like you say, film festivals are the place to be challenged by a film. You don't yeah. know much about what you're going to see, so that was a little disappointing. But, but then the tour kind of was joyous in that respect. So swings yeah. and roundabouts. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, so it's the third film yeah or third feature I should say yeah um, and it is very different um, and I, I wonder to, you know, we'll talk about sort of where you are now but like is it something that the t- kind of film you always wanted to, to make is it a kind of would you think it would be an outlier or is it is it is it a kind of change of direction you know where, where does it sit in your kind of in your sort of your career, but also where you want to go as filmmakers? I think after we made Brown, Brown Willie, broadly speaking, is a comedy. It's a comedy drama, but it's sort of comedy first, I would say. And I really enjoyed screenings of that. And, and Weekend Retreat was comedic, sort of a comedy thriller, but comedy first as well. And I sort of felt like after Brown Willie, I, it was like, oh, okay, we know how to make an audience laugh. And I remember thinking it'd be interesting to try to get right out of my comfort zone and do something that isn't comedy first. Mm. But to me, they're quite similar because there's, there is a thread of drama running throughout Brown Willie. There's, there's more to it than the laughs. Um, so it just, in my head, it was switching those two things around and going drama first. So there are sort of lightly comedic moments in Long Way Back, but... Yeah, it was it was born out of a desire to sort of challenge myself to yeah. sort of go to step into a sort of more difficult place. 
And, it, and the thing is, is if you get funding to make a film, that opens up such a world of opportunities, like because you have money, so you have time, so you can do things. But also what comes with that is you have to answer to a lot more people. And when we made Brown Willie, Cy and I funded it ourselves. So the only person I had to answer to was Cy, and the only person Cy had to answer to was me. And the freedom that came with that was really interesting. And, and I sort of took that mentality into a long way back and was like, I might not ever get a chance to make a film that could be this challenging or could go to this sort of place. And that's why we're really lucky with the sound image cinema lab here at Falmouth University. because there was basically no sort of strings attached. It was, it, was, it was more just encouragement, make the thing you want to make is what was said to us. So Yeah, and I think we made Brown Willie specifically as an experiment in a way, but we knew we wanted to make something comedic and light uh, because we wanted to, we knew we were putting it straight into cinemas originally with no other plan than to do one week in one cinema in Truro to see if we could make our money back and and so that was the only pressure we put on ourselves and so the the style of the film and the way we marketed the film was all based around that and then that grew and it became bigger than that and it and it released on more screens and ran for longer but it was an easy sell easier sell for that and we weren't bothered about putting it into festivals or anything whereas with this we we had that, like Brett said, the Sound Image Cinema Lab put some money in and we had a bigger budget than we've had previously to work with. Still very small in filmmaking terms, but, but, but bigger. And that allowed us to take a few more risks and, and to take our time with it. And we certainly have done that. It's been quite a low proce- uh, long process in, in that respect. But like Brett said, it was, you know, it was a let's have a look at, let's see how we can push the aesthetic of this mm. more. Let's let's you know just on a purely brass tax level brown willie was all exterior locations just two actors this had more like 12 actors 23 locations over 21 days you know it was pushing pushing as much as we could into that budget and and lots of stuff in a in a moving vehicle and so from a production point of view we wanted to push it much further. Mm. And I think we've certainly achieved that aesthetically. It's it's stronger than anything we've made before. The sound is better. We were able to get music commissioned for it specifically, which we've not been able to do since Weekend Retreat. We were able to get a couple of well-known tracks which were important to the story. So in terms of production, pro, you know, uh, production values, we wanted to really up that on this. Mm. And like Brett said, narratively, it was a chance to do something and push push ourselves in that respect. I think in terms of like career and where it will sit, to me the sort of perfect filmography is someone like Richard Linklater who can sort of pivot and chop and change and that there's a weird consistency in the inconsistency of what he makes. <laughs> he, he just makes something different each time. And I kind of love that. I sort of fear being boxed in too much. You, I, you know, you don't want people to. You don't want people to expect, get what they're expecting from what you're making next. Yeah, I suppose. So I kind of like that. It felt good after Brown Willie to do such a left turn with this one, and then hopefully with the next one it will kind of be another swerve, a bit of a pivot into something different again. It's interesting you mentioned Linklater, um, because, you know, when I think of him, when I think I think of Austin. 
you know, and I think of this place where yeah, there yeah, is yeah. a film community, you know, where there is a, you know, there is an independent film scene that is, you know, outward facing in terms of the work it makes and its aspirations, but also, you know, like a real community looking after itself. And that's certainly what I've found since moving here is that, you know, there is a film community, you know, I mean, Cornish cinema has talked about a lot at the moment. We know why. Um, hello, Mark. Um, but, <laughs> but, but the reality on the ground is that this is a place where people make a lot of work and they support each other's work. It really feels like, you know, and you two pop up all the time, producing, executive producing, editing, and, you know, um, and what's been so nice being here nearly 10 years is that that's, that's just, that's just how it seems to be, you know, is that, is that, is that your experience of it? And also, you know, has, how has that enabled you to kind of make this kind of work? Which is, you know, I think Long Way Back is a very daring film, you know, and, and you can see through that filmography, it's grown, you know, how much of, how, how much do you feel part of a community here? Um, uh, and how much does that community kind of feed into your, your work? Let you answer that. <laughs> and I know it's going to be political, for sure, but, you know. Well, I always think of, um, so I was really lucky. I made films for Nihai, the theatre company that recently sort of ended. And I once had to interview Mike Shepard, who was the founding member of the company. And he was talking about where Nihai came from. And he said that he was working in London and as an actor and he just wanted to come home to Cornwall because Cornwall was a place, quote, where you could get stuff made. And I always remember hearing that and thinking, oh yeah, I've never thought about it in those terms. And I think in terms of the sort of community, filmmaking community, that's true. It sort of is a place where you can get stuff made and there, there seems to be a sort of mentality. I'm sure this is the same in other places, but in Cornwall there's this mentality of people, you just make it, just make it, just try it, just make it. So I feel, I do feel part of a filmmaking community down here. I also think we're really lucky because there's lots of very talented people here making really interesting work and there's new filmmakers popping up all the time. And I'm, yeah, I feel very well supported and, and as an extension of that, I feel sort of duty bound to support people if they're asking for help. I really like that, I really, you know, enjoy that. So I worked as an editor on Ed Rowe's first short film last year. And that was really fun coming in just as an editor and just helping him sort of shape the story. And I'm doing a little bit of edit work on Laura Canning's new short film, Day After Tomorrow, actually. And again, I really like that because the more you sort of help other people, the more you kind of learn for yourself. Mm. So it's, it's, we're just really lucky in Cornwall. There's lots of great people around making interesting work. I feel very lucky to be part of it. Yeah, there's lots of places with great people do? making. Is that good? Is that yeah, right? It's all right. Yeah, it's not bad. Well, there's not. Yeah, I mean, it, there's lots of people making great. There's lots of great people making interesting work, but but not many places feel as supportive as as yeah. here. Which you know, just in terms of yeah, going out and seeing stuff and and just having each other's backs. You know, it's a you know so. It, but I, and I do think that feeds into the work that, that that you make, which feels, you know, as an outsider coming in, as I have been, you know independent filmmaking in the kind of the best sense you know like rooted in a place that is felt even if the stories are like long way back not quote unquote a Cornish story yeah which I think is, is, is interesting. I think it was important to us with um, 
it was one of the things we talked about a lot with Long Way Back is that we, uh, the, the, like you say, the story takes place across the UK, uh, and it's it's a journey of a father and daughter coming back to Cornwall, having uh, the daughter having left university in uh, mysterious, tragic circumstances, but we wanted it to be as Cornish as we could in that mm. respect, partly practical, so we didn't have the budget to to do the journey that they do within the film. So we had to find ways of doing that. So that's part of the challenge was finding locations that could double and, and working out how to shoot all the road stuff. So very, very little of it is shot outside of Cornwall. But equally when we were casting it, we wanted it to be as Cornish as we could get it. So uh, Tristan and Chloe, the two leads, are both actors that we know from theatre. And that, going back to Brett's previous comment is, has been quite a lot you know our, our knowledge of the theatre scene and our immersement in that theatre scene and the film scene to us is very very blurry yeah, yeah. in terms of pulling stuff together but then and then we were thinking about who could play the, the foster mother and then and then we hit upon Susan Penhaligon who's um, quite a renowned actress uh, from Cornwall originally and desperate to be back here and so we reached out to her. She'd seen a theatre show that I'd directed and, and we made the link through Ed Rowe. Ed Rowe in the film. Um, so all, all of the subsidiary cast, all the supporting cast was, was as Cornish as we could make it. All the 80%, 85% yeah, of the locations are all in Cornwall. Um, so that was that's important to us. And, yeah. and going back to that previous point, I think you're sort of partly you're forced to do it that way if you're going to be here and you're going to be five miles out uh, five hours away from London or the nearest uh, uh, higher place is Bristol or whatever you know you have to work around that so geographically it forces that and also there's just the way that we've worked for the last 20 years now and, and working with other projects it's sort of all built up to this this point really so it's the beauty of it is there isn't a lot of money or sort of funding in Cornwall necessarily, but then you you have things that that are sort of production assets or production values that you can't really put a price on. So we know if we make a film and we're in the edit, there's like ten people we can send the edit to who are filmmakers in Cornwall that are brilliant that can look at it. If you're writing a script, you know you there's so many people around that you can send a script to to get really good sort of writing feedback on. And it's kind of using that and paying that forward as well and being happy to sort of return the favour to other filmmakers, which we are, which I, I feel very proud of, sort of very lucky to be a part of it, I think. Cool. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to just go back a bit in terms of the, the, the challenges you set yourself with the film, because you mentioned the aesthetic challenges, you mentioned the kind of the tonal challenges. Um, the film was shot before lockdowns, yeah, but then edited throughout that period, yeah, and it came out the other side with, yeah, with with as you kind of alluded to this very specific determined pace, which I think you know absolutely serves the film beautifully. And I just wonder what what it was like to sit with that over that period of time, because I I wonder if there were any any moments where you were tempted to to take the the, sort of the industry notes that might have been bubbling around <laughs> because of, you know, just the sheer strangers of that period and I'm wondering, like, what, what kind of world is the film going to go into? Yeah, I... What's fa 
I will answer the question, but no, in a roundabout way. No, no, that's fine. What's fascinating to me about any sort of film or creative project is it sort of starts with one person in a room going, I think this is a good idea. And then five years later, you watch it with an audience and go, was this a good idea? <laughs> yeah, I think this was a good idea. And you, so much of it becomes, you, you, I think the trick is not to second guess yourself too much in the edit. I think it's always good to kind of be questioning stuff, but, but you've got to keep it within a certain sort of limit. So in terms of the pace, I was never tempted to sort of speed it up. Because mm. uh, it just felt right. And I, and I find that when all else fails, go with your instincts in that point. And certainly we were screening it to people, trusted people like yourself, to sort of watch it. And, and we never got any feedback to say it was too slow or anything like that. It always felt right for the project. But the thing you worry about is you're always aware of an audience. How will an audience take this? And it goes back to what we were talking about, about having faith in an audience of going, no, I think people will go with it. I think they, I think as long as you set the pace in that opening act of the film, mm. stay true to that, you're not going to surprise them later on in the film. You're kind of setting your stall out yeah. and hoping that they'll it's, go with it. In terms of the the edit, though, if you think about the the timeline of it, we we pretty much you'd done a full cut of it, and so we were just two weeks before the first lockdown. We were in the Plaza Cinema in Truro watching it on a big screen, and really we were looking at the grade and listening to the sound mix. So we were already at picture lock, really. Yeah. So. So weirdly, there was so there wasn't masses of post going on during the lockdown because we literally had probably five percent left of the film to mm. do. We were sort of patting ourselves on the back, going, "This is great. We've done this so quickly. Isn't it brilliant? What fun we can do!" You know, we've <laughs> we've, we've turned this round in just under six months because that's what it had been. We shot it in twenty nineteen. It was pretty much there early March twenty twenty. Mm. We we had literally a couple of notes to do, and then obviously the world shut down. So we couldn't get back in here to do the final bit of sound mix and we couldn't get to Michael's to do the final bit of picture grade. So we were literally sat for that first lockdown not able to do the work that we needed to do to finish yeah. it off. So it was so sort of tantalising. And also you were seeing a lot of stuff being released online during those lockdowns. And in a way, if we'd been just, you know, if, if things had gone differently and we didn't have 5% left to do in that last we might have considered putting it into one of those festivals online and yeah. it might have had a diff would it definitely would have had a different tra trajectory mm. so it's just a it was a long-winded process but we held our nerve with it i think we didn't yeah. we didn't feel like we wanted to push it out there at that we just we sort of knew what we had we loved what we had and we were excited about it but we held back and then we got in touch with the festival agency and they agreed to take it on and help us come up with a festival strategy and then we held our nerve with that for another year while it was getting sent off to festivals, getting rejected, you know, possibles but not happening and all the rest of it. And so we just held on and held on and just yeah. thought it'll be what it will be now. We've come this far. We'll rather than rush it out or put it into somewhere smaller or what, whatever, we held on until the Manchester premiere yeah. came in. I mean, that was quite a tough process, really, because we would get the feedback and we'd see it's been rejected from another 30 festivals. We, you know, we probably got rejected from over 100 festivals before we got our first yeah. one, and then we got a few more off the back of it. But I think it's safe to say it didn't, because partly because Brett was saying everything was coming out post, and yeah. you know, there was lots of stuff coming out, 
And partly, I think, because we were sending it off to festival programmers, and I'm not sure that they necessarily watch it in its entirety. Mm. Always that might be doing a disservice to some of them. But I think if you watch it on a screen, a link on a small laptop, and you're watching and you're waiting to be grabbed in the way a cinema audience will respond to a blockbuster, it, it is never going to work in that yeah. respect. You, the cinema worked really, really well for us because you know, you've got an uninterrupted viewing yeah. of it. And it sweeps... It slowly sweeps the audience along yeah, yeah. without them even realising. Yeah, and and like certainly the feedback we were getting is people, you know, people saying I blindsided me. It did this, yeah. you know, it sort of got under my skin. And you know, still talking to people now. A couple of weeks ago, people saying I saw the film and it's it's really stayed with me. You know, and so that that's good. And we sort of knew that as well. I think we we always talked about saying that this wouldn't necessarily be a film for everyone, but when it but when it touched a nerve, we felt like it would really touch a nerve yeah. because of the subject matter and the way that it's dealt with. So, yeah, it's almost kind of like yeah, worth holding your nerve for that final, or not final, but that kind of that big sort of cinema. This is the idea you had, I guess, at the start in terms of what yeah. it could be when you're sitting there on your own thinking, like, what could it be? It could be that, and to get there must be really rewarding. Yeah, and it was again. It was back to the way it was sort of shot and conceived. It was going. We've come this far. It would be a shame not to release this on big screens. Mm. It would be a shame not to get out into cinema. So we just, like I said, just held our nerve and held our nerve. Yeah. But having a picture log meant that you can't go back in and tinker with it because that's going to. Which is probably a good thing, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A good, a good, a good place to be shut down. Um, you mentioned that you got a couple of tracks that you were hoping for in the music. I did want to talk about the music, and we've talked about it a lot. Um, but what, what I did want to ask was like, music influences in film, because one of the things I was realizing is that you, what you don't see very often anymore, but you used to see a lot, 60s, 70s, is score by X yeah. with songs by yeah, another yeah. artist, which is, sometimes works really well and sometimes just really doesn't. Um, <laughs> works well here. Um, but but you just don't really see it where you know so I really want to share what I know of that process but you know talk a bit more about it because you are bringing essentially two very different styles sensibilities musical musical people together and trying to make them work in the whole so yeah can you just sort of talk through the process of that and, and, and if there are any instances of, of films that you like that do that but, but also general kind of musical styles you like in movies so the score is by Matthew Thomason and the songs are by Luke Toms and I, Luke's an old school friend of mine, we've known each other for years and years and years now and it was way back when I was writing the script and developing the script that he had written a collection of songs that were to do with a tragedy that had happened in his family and he basically got in contact with me and said I'm coming home to Cornwall, I'm going to record this music in my home I'm probably never going to play these songs live again. So I'm going to record the album with an invited audience. Could you film it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. And it was a very intense, intimate gig in his house, and a house that I sort of grew up in myself because we've known each other for so long. And the songs were so personal and so painful and be but beautiful that I was editing them at the same time as writing the script, and they just they just sort of bled into each other. Mm. I just couldn't get them out of my head when I was developing bits of the script. So I got back in contact with Luke and pitched him the idea of Long Way Back and said that I wanted to use sort of four or five of his songs in the film. And he was really up for it and that 
and, and they sort of came in. So it, it, that happened at a script level. The score happened in a really sort of weirdly roundabout way. It was before we'd shot. It was when we were, we were sort of lining up to shoot the film. Cy was working on a project with Matthew. And, and one, Adam Layton. And Adam Layton. cinematographer. DOP, yeah. And, and whilst they were out filming, whilst Adam was filming, they, Cy and Matt were just chatting. And Matt was like, what are you working on next? And Cy pitched him the idea for the film. And Matt went away on his own and just started tinkering around on the piano and sort of came up with some sketches and ideas. And then... There was no, no conversation that Matt was going to do the score at all. Yeah. It was just a, we pitched him the idea and he was like, oh, right, okay. And then we ended up sort of telling him the whole idea. I think we even sent him the script. After he no, sent the first few... Not, not for the first thing. He literally sent... He, he went away and said, I've been thinking about it, I've been thinking about it. And he sent one track through and it was uh, um, Leah's theme. Oh, yes. A, yes. a sketch of that. He sent that through and said, look, I don't want to overstep the mark, but, you know, and I don't want to expect anything from this, but what do you think of this? You know, I just, this was something I wrote inspired by what you told me about it, which I then sent to Brett, and we were like, wow, this is really good, you know, it's got a really nice yeah, feel right. to it. And then we sent him the script and then sort of had the conversation about him coming on board and, and putting a few, I don't think we talked about him doing the full score at that point. No, he, he my recollection of it is he sent through loads of scratch versions of music my memory is that I responded really positively and went, this is brilliant. Turns out in reality, I never sent that email. <laughs> so he just didn't hear anything from us. But I had all the music with me when we were on set I shooting. Think, yeah, so he knew that we were going to use his music and the, and the agreement was come to that he was going to write it. But, you know, he, in his mind, he was sending us sketches and we were going to then have a conversation and mm. he was going to go off and work them up. <laughs> Brett just really liked them, so we just started using them, and we had them on set, and we used Yeah, them. so I was able to play the music on set at certain points over whilst we were shooting stuff, and then when we got into the edit, I used all the scratch recordings, and then we invited Matt round to watch the film. In Matt's mind, Matt was coming round to have the conversation about what he would then go off and actually start writing. Mm. <laughs> he came and watched the full edit of the film with all his scratch tracks on there. I was like, wow, and we were like, this is great, so we just need these re-recorded. <laughs> to which he went, great, I've not written any of this down, I haven't scored any of it, they're just sketches. So he had then had to relearn Unpick his own work. <laughs> and we didn't find this out until doing a Q&A, and Matt came and did one of the Q&As, and he said this, yeah, and we yeah. were like, oh, we hadn't realised that had been such Whoops. a nightmare for you. But, but having the score having a version of the score in place before we were filming was so useful. Yeah. So I can't really imagine doing it the traditional way of having it scored afterwards. It was the same on Brown Willie, wasn't it? We had the songs before. We had the songs before, yeah. So, so yeah, so Matt never heard Luke's songs then? No. Not until he saw the final version. And Luke had written all his songs way back, way back before, before yeah. the score was written. So subsequently, they've and, and they just kind of weirdly blend. They both recorded on old pianos that have that got a particular slightly, almost slightly out of tune, you know, they're quite broken down pianos. They both piano-led songs, mm. and so they just sort of bleed together really nicely. They've subsequently met at a premiere in Truro, and are talking about it, and both of them are really keen now to um, do a live. To do a live. So we're exploring how to do that because we think it will be quite 
not I, I hesitate to say easy, but all we need is a piano and a microphone. Obviously, Luke sings, Matt just plays, and so the two. You know, we think we can do it. We've just got to. When we've got time, we will do that. So well, they be sat next to each other like a seventies chat show, <laughs> yeah. on the piano stool, That'd be great. chatting and just playing together. That'd be like, well, well, I, I imagine them like if we can get two pianos, we'll have them back to back like Billy Joel and um, <laughs> Elton John. Great. The piano men. <laughs> I'm sort of glad that they didn't hear what the other person mm. was was doing though, and didn't influence each yeah. other in that way. I sort of prefer that. And Lucas certainly, you know, having gone from "I'm never going to play these songs again" has actually been quite cathartic for him. Hasn't yes, it? So he's, yeah, yeah. he's released these tracks now, mm. and he's really up for the idea of playing them live. I think part of it, anyone that hears them, they're so raw, and they they were only ever recorded in that one. Yeah, live yeah. performance and so they've got a very particular feel to them because of that I think the emotion comes right through yeah and they play well all music plays a very specific important role in the film in terms of the where the emotion sits yeah a lot of the time until the yeah kind of everything kind of comes together at the end I love songs in films though mm. I love films that have songs written for them the, the the thing I always think about is Cat Stevens and Harold and Maud. Yeah. And that was what I was thinking of this morning. Such an important role that that plays in the film. Like, you can't separate the two. Yeah. And it doesn't happen that often anymore, which is a shame, I think. No, it's normally just the end credits to get the Oscar nomination, isn't it? So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so yeah, I mean, I always love it when there's a, yeah you know, a specific love theme and this, the film, that's what we did in Wilderness, was like, have this love theme sequence. You know, which people are like, well, why are they just? And it's like, well, because you know, that's what we want to see. Um, but yeah, those specific pieces of music written specifically for certain things, I think, is so it is so rare. And yeah, that, that's really interesting to hear that that process uh, kind of come together. And I, I suppose Luke's songs sort of—I always imagine them almost like the sort of Greek chorus of the film. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, that's the role they play in the narrative. So I can sort of, the logic of it is that Luke would be an artist that Leah, the daughter character, likes. So she has his songs on the iPod. But then the father character, David, is really into music. He's quite a sort of music aficionado. So he would have heard of Luke. He'd yeah. be into sort of Luke's stuff. So the logic of it, how it sits in the story makes sense. But also the role that those songs play outside of that yeah. was sort of carefully thought about as well. And one of the one of the songs, the, the one of the earliest songs, sort of, yeah, you know. But but I think you would probably only pick that up on a rewatch. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Have you found that that people have gone back and got oh, oh yeah that there there is a almost that kind of Greek chorus narrator at the start sort of laying out the emotional joke, which I think you know I I, I don't I, I didn't pick up on it the first time, but I think w watching it again I was like oh actually there is a. Well, it's, it's interesting. Shall we say the film doesn't have a twist per se. We we don't we try not to describe it as a twist, but there's a reveal in the sort of third act that changes your experience of the first two acts. And what what's been incredible about screenings and Q and As is people get it at different points in the story. So some people kind of twig quite early on, sort of first twenty minutes, mm. twenty five minutes, and other people don't get it until right towards the end. And what's really nice is the film works either way. Mm. It doesn't spoil your enjoyment of it because it's not a twist. It's not a shock twist or yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sort of spoil your experience of it. 
what is very useful about that is it means most people want to watch the film again. Mm. So you've got a film that people want to watch at least twice, which is quite useful. Always good. And I think the, the yeah, like you say, I think it's the first of Luke's songs, The Harbour. The yeah. very first bit, the very first two lines of the song effectively tell you what yeah. happens in the film. But even, uh, yeah, it does that. But there's, there's even, there's a passage in the, one of my favourite bits is early in the film. David literally tells you what, you know, it's, he says yeah. almost on the nose the yeah. what the plot of the film is. Mm. He sums it up in one monologue early mm. on as well, which is kind of great. But he also sort of tells you more than that. He kind of tells you the theme of the film as yes, well, yeah, yeah. Re of redemption. That's always a sort of um, satisfying moment when you're writing, when you get that. When you work, when you work out that you can do that quite early on in the film, set out the kind of themes of it and just hide them enough that they're not too obvious, you can take the rest of the day off if you're writing. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I was just going to ask you about writing and 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 I guess pre-production because you both sort of alluded there to the role that music plays. You know, do you do you write to music and and have you always gone in? Because you mentioned there about Brown Willie side, which I wasn't aware of. You had the songs before, yeah. like, you know. Is music a big driving force in terms of your creative process as a, you know, in terms of writing and then knowing what the film's going to be? Yeah, well, yes, it is. I listen to music all the time when I'm writing. I also find that making playlists is a very good bit of procrastination because you can kid yourself into thinking that you're actually doing some work by putting together a playlist. We've all been there. Um, <laughs> I also put together watch lists as well, like films I should probably watch that are in the same... Mm sort of sphere as the thing I'm trying to write but I've always got music playing because um, it's because music's so important in films I find it's you know it really is kind of the driving force and, and writing is as you know can be so sort of painful and difficult and like getting blood from the stone so anything that helps that process along that moves it forward is useful certainly it's interesting. You, you, I guess, sorry, you know, you are the producer of these films. You know, it feels like for you, music must play a, a really important role in terms of you understanding what the film is. Yeah. You know, in in a way that's different to reading the script. You know, there's a kind of tonal thing. There's a an atmospheric thing in terms of you know. Is, is that is that how you consciously see it, or is it? Yeah, I mean, certainly with. Um, yeah, I mean, Brett, Brett is pretty prescriptive of where he puts them in the script. So with Brown Willie, for example, we did a read-through here in the cinema, mm. and we had the tracks, and Brett knew where the track was coming in and going out, so he'd sort of taken it to a point. So we could literally, as we did the read-through, Brett was DJing along to it and putting the music under so it was under sequences. So that that is a really helpful mm. link into it. And it was the same in Long Way Back, so we knew... I knew where Luke's songs would sit, and so I could kind of get the tone out of them. But I feel like I know Brett's writing really well, so I can get so the right reading it is the key. That's how our process starts early. Is Brett will get a draft out on page, and we'll talk it through, and then it will get developed from there. And then I'll suggest things and sort of work in that creative producer kind of role, I guess. But yeah, the music. It certainly it all it all helps, but I think given the closeness of our working relationship, then I say work personal ones are dreadful, but <laughs> working ones are. Right. Um, 
I, you know, I get, I get where he's coming from a lot yeah. of the time on that level. Sometimes it, it works in different ways as well. Like sometimes with Brown Willie, all the music's by a band called Three Came Whale, who are friends of ours. So it was lots of different tracks by Three Came Whale, and on Long Way Back, the original sort of playlist was pulling from lots of different directions. On the next film, I've recently stumbled on one piece of music that I think is the thing that helps me get into the right headspace mm. to write it, which I've just cut together the sort of sizzle reel to. So it sort of works differently for each one, but it's like I will never be able to use the piece of music, but it just helps me click into mm, the right yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of state of mind. The sizzle reel's really helpful as well, I think. You did one for a long way back, yeah, which we showed here when we looked yeah, at the project. That. Yeah, I remember that. And yeah. actually, if you look back at that now, you kind of go, oh yeah, it's very close to a lot of the stuff. Yeah. And the one that Brett's just cut for the new one floored me when I saw it a couple of weeks ago because it so captures it. It's brilliant. Well, never say never, because you've got, you got a pavement track in, in the last one. <laughs> That's yeah, true. true. Um, which is, which this is one great. would cost significantly more. Well, yeah. you know. I say never say never. Um, so yeah, you sort of alluded to there in terms of like the closest to the relationship. Obviously, brothers working together for a very long time, um, still working together. Unlike Cohen brothers um, <laughs> and the Farrelly brothers as well. Well, less missed as a duo, <laughs> I would argue. But um, uh, maybe get back together, Farrellys. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I want to end just on kind of what's next, but framed in terms of the, the challenges, because I think we talked a lot about what Long Way Back represented in terms of a step along, you know. So don't, you know, don't expect you to talk about it. I mean, what you to talk about what the thing is, but I'm interested in what, what, what are the challenges that you've set yourself for the next one? Because it seems like you've achieved so much with this film creatively and, you know, sort of in terms of the, the release, you know. So have you got any conscious things where you're like, this is where, this is why I want to push next time? I feel like we're both going to say the exact same thing. Go on then. Which is, <laughs> the, the next one would be a significant step up in terms of scale, I would say. Yeah. If the next one is the one that we're working on at the moment, um, it's, it's a much bigger scale. From a sort of personal point of view, from a kind of writer-director point of view, the next one is a step up in terms of genre. It, it's, it's working in lots of different genres, so it's a step up from a directing point of view of kind of embracing the, the tropes of those genres and using that. Um, and it's a, I always sort of, I mean, each film is sort of deeply personal, but the next one is sort of so personal. Mm. It's almost it's almost sort of hilariously personal. Like I don't <laughs> know how I'm gonna do Q and A's for it. If, if we do end up making it, I don't think I can get through a Q and A for it because the subject matter which I'm happy to talk about now. Well, it's we'll up to you. See if I can get through it now. Okay, let's, should we do a dry run? <laughs> I'll be the first... Uh... No, I'm sorry, cut. <laughs> um, no, so I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease when I was 37. I'm 41 now. Six weeks before we shot Long Way Back. Yes, which is not a good time. <laughs> Don't think there is a good time, but that's, no, but that's especially not, it, not a good time. time. So the next... so And I made a short film called Hand, which was sort of exploring how I felt about it and where I was at. And now I'm kind of off the back of hand and off the back of Long Way Back, I've written a, a sort of genre-bending comedy drama about somebody getting Parkinson's disease. Sort of very much coming from the point of view of going, 
if anyone's allowed to make a comedy about Parkinson's disease, surely it's me. Surely that's the one benefit I can get from yeah. being diagnosed. <laughs> but um, but it's also a film about my love of cinema as well and, and why I in love all its forms. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In, in high and very very low brow yeah, cinema. Yeah. Absolutely. So the character is a is someone who sees the world through film mm. and the films of his youth, the sort of popcorn cinema of his youth. Yeah. Well, before we before we came on mic, we were talking about the Oscars. Yeah, yeah. And that description to me sounds very similar to everything everywhere all at once. Yeah, it's not really, in a, yeah, in terms of like what's driving that story. It's really strange because I sort of conceived of it before I saw that film and then had that moment of watching the film of going, yeah, like sort of along these lines. So it's kind of a weird Yeah. Sort of yeah, serendipity yeah. moment. We've been working on it a couple of years already, so we actually raised a bit of money. For, so that it's already a first in that we managed to raise the money, so Brett got paid some time to mm. write this. And we also worked with a script editor outside of the two of us for the first time in an official capacity. And that was through screen growth money through Screen Cornwall. Um, but yeah, so we've been working on it for a while. But, I, but weirdly, when I saw everything, everywhere all at once as well I was like this is this has definitely got vibes that that will be similar but as going back to the Oscars and going back to the the next film the character in the next film loves sort of highbrow kind of just loves cinema which very much reflects my thing yeah um I think 2012 my two favorite films of 2012 were Holy Motors and The Avengers and I see just as much value in both of those films. And looking at the Oscars, it was really interesting having watched Triangle of Sadness recently and then watching Top Gun Maverick and going, I don't see a distinction between, I, I yeah, embrace yeah. these films for what they are and on their sort of terms. I kind of, I just love cinema, I just yeah. love films. Me too, man, me too. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I love your film. Thank um, you very much. And yeah, I love your work. I love working with you. Um, and it's been really great to chat to you both. Thank Thanks you very man. much. Pleasure. So yeah, thanks Brett and Sai for coming in for uh, a chat. Um, and yeah, Long Way Back is, is available to rent and buy uh, pretty much anywhere you get your digital film content these days. So Dario, yeah, what did you make of our conversation? Yeah, really, really interesting. I think my connection to you guys and, and the the region, having worked there for sort of five years, but being an outsider, 
it, it really sort of touched on some interesting areas. I think just generally as well, though, the idea of w- what kind of cinema this film and what kind of cinema they're interested in making generally, you know, because you were talking about their wider filmography. And is this a sort of, you know, is this a rural cinema? Is this a regional cinema? Um, and what do those things mean, both in terms of representation, but also in terms of the the funding and exhibition models and processes that they have to um, work within, let's say. I mean, it's interesting because obviously what's happened to Mark Jenkin has kind of shifted the boundaries a touch because everything's going to be sort of compared to that, which is slightly unfair, I think. Um, you know, the, the, I think this film is is very much... A, a reflection, I think, of what Cy, Cy and Brett's interests are in terms of them them being Cornish people, but in a very different way to Mark Jenkin, which is interesting considering, you know, you could probably lump them all in together and say, oh, here's, here's, here's Cornish film culturally. But they're very, they're, I think they're interested in very different things. Um, and yeah, funnily enough, even though Jenks, I think, goes really deep in on the idea of Cornishness in a sort of, you know, in the ways that he does, which is sometimes quite, um, fan- not fantastical, but, you know, mythic in, in many ways, where there's, there's a sort of day-to-day reality in this movie that is, you know, set in where, where it is, but also kind of just just a, a story that people will recognise. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and I think, yeah, and, and I think that the, you know, the, the that sort of question of how they release and what they're interested in 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 terms of building an audience and you know wh- whether there is really any intention to sort of think oh would this would this kind of thing play in london i mean it was an interesting thing about the film, film festivals and i and i get that but also you know it, it, it's i'm not saying it's an easy thing to to just say oh yeah this this was kind of knackered by the pa- pandemic or you know as they say in the interview that that it's too downbeat too negative or not it doesn't have enough happiness kind of going through it um and i think that 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 i i definitely think that that probably was the case you know the back end of the of the of covid people wanted to see something that was a little bit more uplifting um and 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 definitely wasn't as introspective as as this film kind of can be it can be read as i think yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah. so yeah i mean i i just wondered yeah, like for 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 you in terms of your relationship with with them in a sort of production sense, and then having done your own film, and then obviously working with with Jenks, I just wondered what you you thought of their reflections on on releasing a movie, making a movie in Cornwall, and then and then how do you sort of package that? Do you make it like you know play on the ideal of Cornwall as a as a venue, and you're going to see lots of nice vistas and this kind of stuff which is a little bit of that but it doesn't play on that in a postcardy kind of way or you know is this more about actually building up a, a, a legacy and a and a um, an infrastructure of cornish uh film not just in the production side but in the exhibition side and just focusing on that r- rather than really worrying about what wider interpretations are because i think that's quite difficult to do you do want your films to play all over the place. So therefore, does it become regional and rural cinema? So it, it would be, it would play well in Scotland or it would play well in the north of England or wherever, do you know what I mean? Sorry, it's a bit rambly, that that question, but do you get what I'm saying? It's kind of, is is this a completely different approach to sort of the film 
both the film production side and the film distribution exhibition side from from your perspective as a as a royal your as a royal your yeah no yeah. i think i think it makes sense i'll try and i'll try and unpack it as as best as i've understood but i think i think i know what you're you're sort of circling around which i think you know i think is lots of things that we think about and talk about on the ground here in terms of the films that we engage with and work with and the you know because yeah that part of the work of the lab is to work in innovative ways you know to think about how micro budget independent films are made and how we can impact that and sort of represent a different way of doing things in terms of what is the industry standard and a lot of that aligns already with what Cornish filmmakers have done you know for decades <laughs> you know which is find ways to make work and then release it however they can because the world isn't really paying attention you know and mm. it's not just a Cornwall yeah. you know it's you know it's Scotland it's Wales it's it is the Celtic nations it is regional cinema it's even you know and I say this to students all the time like you know I've got students from Leeds I've got students you know when was the last time you saw a film from Leeds and you knew it was Leeds you know regional cinema doesn't really exist in in the UK you know um and it's interesting with a long way back because almost one of its kind of spiritual cousins is something like Bill Forsyth you know that kind of quiet contemplative yeah, yeah, Scott yeah, yeah. but those films don't we don't see, you know, and there's probably loads being made, you know, shorts or whatever. But it is that awareness which the exhibition is really important for in terms of showing that stuff. And I think until there's a until there's a concerted effort on the behalf of the central film industry, which is London, still, in terms of not just supporting that work, but in production, but supporting it in distribution, nothing will change. What's interesting down here is that. You know, people, your filmmakers like the, the Harvey brothers is they do have a desire to reach a wider audience. You know, they want to be their films are very mainstream in terms of you know they're not like Jenks's films. They're very kind of you know what might be called traditional narrative films. Um, they have a desire to um, to reach a wider audience and connect and 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 you know, but unlike other places and I think that's a kind of a, a quite a Cornish and regional thing is that it that's not the that's not going to stop them making work you know because yeah. then they're used to not having that audience the Mark's work has shone a spotlight on Cornwall in a different way but what I haven't seen is a kind of a flurry of people going oh you know kind of locally trying to capitalize on that everyone's just kind of going about what they were doing before because I think everyone's aware that yeah, yeah, yeah. a Mark's a very singular voice but also you know, people's idea of what this place is 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 not going to be fulfilled by the kind of films that are going to come out of it. You know, it's interesting you sort of say about the postcard stuff. Most of the postcard stuff in Long Way Back, which is different to Brown Willie, is not. It's not as Cornwall, even though a lot of it was shot here. It's other parts of the country. You know, a lot of yeah. Cornish filmmakers are yeah, of course, interested in the landscape in different ways. That's you know that, and there is a tension here between that. You know, like Mark's talked about that a lot. You know the the postcards and the the village idiot you know and the kind of the 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 traditional idea of like rural coastal life on screen is is a very narrow one and a lot of filmmakers are trying to which again i think is is great for a an ecosystem if it can be supported and it can be you know something that is a going concern 
But the reality is that people probably want stuff that looks nice and speaks to their idea of Cornwall if they're going to go to the cinema. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's the problem with regional cinemas historically is that the films that naturally emerge from those places are more in tension with the locale than the films that parachute in, you know, and like use the use the, the seaside town and bring a whole production down and just want just want that kind of production aesthetic and then go back up country. So I don't know if that kind of speaks to what you were saying, but yeah. You know, and, and, and again, and it just makes the kind of the release of the films, you know, something where I think there is a, and I think what was interesting was I, I think I probably pushed for more tension in them in the interview in terms of, I would have thought that they would have been more disappointed, a bit more angry about that. That they seemed much more sanguine, which again speaks to a bit of like, well, they kind of know what to expect more than I did because that's their experience yeah, much yeah, more yeah. than it is mine. Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I, you know, my experience of being down there wasn't different from any other experience anywhere. Which is, people tend to want to keep a hold of what they've got on their own little patch. Mm. You know what I mean? And whether it's kind of, you know, naming no names, any specifics, you know, it's like somebody's setting something up or running something, you know what I mean? They're going to do it in a way that keeps them in that in, in a certain position. Mm. So nobody wants to, in that, with that mindset, very few people want to take chances. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's exacerbated in a rural area when you're fighting for crumbs, yeah. you know, if it comes to funding. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, you must, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and I think Brett and Sai were very diplomatic about some of the some of the long-standing tensions down here around what is Cornish film and what represent what makes a Cornish film and what is Cornish cinema, you know. And yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, yeah. it's deep. It's we haven't got time for it now, but it is deeply political, you know, and and oh, historical. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that is true of a lot of places. Yeah, and also sort of representational as well in terms of that that sense of we don't want. You know what's what? I mean, this is not Cornwall, is it? But like, we don't want sort of straw dogs. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. but then there's well, it is Cornwall. Cornwall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. the classic is, example. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then, but then also, it's kind of like there's a group who are like, there'll be a faction who don't want that, but then there's a faction who don't want pole dark either, or yeah, you know, um, the a BBC sort of one show version either. Um, of of Cornwall because that 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 speaks to that idea I think of you know the Tory second home you know and the yeah, idea yeah. that David Cameron's down down there and and what have you <laughs> you know so yeah 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 but then again I suppose as well you've got to push back a little bit on I mean it's one of those things that I think sometimes is a little bit of a, a misnomer and and people are afraid to call out audiences. You know, and sort of, I mean, they said, you know, that the, the audiences, once they've seen the film, you know, they're happy to do the work. But I think, you know, it, it, if, you, if you're showing an independent movie to a group who have come out to that specifically, yeah, they're happy to do the work. But, you know, I, I think we've gone through years and, and this is, this, you know, this is not necessarily just London-centric film development in the UK's fault. It's just, it's just generally, it's, it's the, the, the culture of film engagement right now. It's streaming. It's the fact that we have so many channels, but yet we seem to be more cine literate back when there was only three channels. Um, you know, and, and it's the, yeah, it's the fact that the algorithm decides what, what, what we want rather than a sort of, a, 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 sort of a, a curation that has the, 
educate, entertain and inform, you know, and it sounds like a cliche now, even sort of saying that when the BBC is in so much trouble, it seems right now. But, you know, I, I, I just think the audiences aren't prepared to do the work, even on a movie like this, which I don't think is particularly difficult, you know, at all. It's just, you know, the, the, the action moves on at a particular pace, which with what you're talking about. And, you know, maybe that's part of it. It's just like, you know, a, a huge percentage of audience are just ready. They think film is things that are fired at you at 100 mile an hour. So you never, ever get bored. You know, it's like film film editing, like doom scrolling, essentially, you know, and obviously this is not that, you know. Yeah, it's not that. And I think you're right. And, and anything that is like that almost has to have its arbiters of validation, you know. So it has to be, yeah, screened at the BFI or released by A24 or, you know, whatever it is. Like there has to be yeah, these, yeah, yeah. you know, and I, and, I think, and I think you're right. I think because a lot of that is very quick signifiers of validity, you know. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think that's where I certainly find attention in terms of not just Long Way Back, but Long Way Back as an example of, you know, independent film. And that's where I think that the failure is not necessarily cinemas or... London audience you know I think it's I think festivals have a huge part to play particularly independent film festivals which are they have their own tensions they have their own difficulties funding marketplace I get all of that but it's like for me the responsibility is to is for those to be testing grounds for stuff and those are places to to build an audience or to to see you know and you know and I think that I think having sort of seen having been involved in a lot of films here that have gone out to the festival circuit and, and had a lot of feedback over a lot of stuff over recent years a lot of it is that you know the festival programmers are kind of scared of of scared of films that they don't know where to sit or they don't think an audience will like you say kind of quickly come in and understand you know and that goes from shorts to docs to you know there is a, i think there is a real problem in independent film festivals that are not doing that work so again if it's been at berlin tick a box great you know but there are thousands of festivals and their programs all look very very similar because they're all they're gravitating to the same films which are validated by british council or bfi or they've been at these festivals so in terms of many many festivals the film programming that's actually out there is very very limited but there are thousands of thousands of films being made and some of them are terrible obviously but Mm. but some of them are not some of them i think deserve a chance to just have that run and see you know and that's that's what's shrinking for me, and then and then by the time, you know, the, the the chances for people to actually see the work and get is is kind of limited. So, you know, not saying that I think Long Way Back should have been playing at X Y festivals, but I think it's a film that deserved more of a go in that space, you know. Um, yeah. And hopefully people will come to it now. And I think the thing is, having been in the room with it, with an audience, there is something that happens with an audience, you know. Yeah, so you yeah, do yeah. want to see, and I think it's a go back to the thing you were saying about like, well, who's it for? Is it just for Cornish people or is it for, does it travel? And I think part of the thing with festivals and I certainly found that with Wilderness was the places that took a punt on it, you started to see, oh, okay, it, it plays in these spaces, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. And that's where you realise audiences are smarter than, you know, and that's where you start to build an idea of what a film can do. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, the question of, is it for Cornish people? audiences or is it for wider audiences will only be answered by it playing for wider audiences and seeing but we live in a risk averse society because like you say it's if it doesn't hit on the opening weekend and hit the algorithm and be in the top 10 it disappears forever 
you know and there's a lot at stake yeah, for, yeah. for people i get that i get that in a capitalist sense i get that you know i get the pressures that people are under to make people come out to festivals and to sit in front of screens but yeah there's not much else <laughs> out there but i th- I, I mean again I, I don't know like given the given the circumstances you know of of what brett and Sai sort of talked about post pandemic and a particular kind of festival season because of that you know let's say that this came out in a in a in a normal year we didn't have the pandemic you know counterfactual you know maybe there would have been a a, a sort of broader run or or a broader acceptance in festivals and it may have got a you know a broader run in in cinemas in various areas you know what i mean that could could speak to it in that in that sense but you know maybe that there's a realism that has to be kind of accepted that it's not going to play in london you know, for but beyond maybe the odd screening here where there's a Q&A and that kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? It's not going to have yeah, a sort of yeah, run yeah. in London in that in that sense. So where, therefore, first of all, it, it's back to that question of what is the difference between cinema as commerce and cinema as mm. art? And then secondly, what is the measure of success for a film like this? Yeah, yeah. Given its, given its context. And maybe this is, you know, it's now it's streaming. It's It's had a run. It's been out. And and now it's streaming and and you know I mean we're talking about it but you know we have a connection to the filmmakers but if it it might get picked up elsewhere and it has a sort of long tail for want of a better word or or, or a little bit of a you know a low slow burn mm. success in that in that sense and that's kind of what you can expect in this day and age yeah no and I think that's I think that's absolutely valid and I you know I would. I don't want to speak for them, but I would imagine that they would see it as a success that it's, you know, it toured cinemas and they had good audiences and, and it's out available for people to buy. You know, I think, I, I, I don't think they're naive enough to not think that that's a success, you know. I think one of the things, you know, like Wilderness benefited massively from coming out in 2021 when cinemas were closed. Sure. And, you know, and managed to get national press coverage alongside Palm, String, Palm Springs and Sound of Metal on the on the film review show because everything was flattened. Everything came out at the same time in the same places. There was no, we massively benefited from that in terms of coverage. Um, And that was successful. And I think, yeah, I think that these, I think, yeah, probably the thing that I didn't really talk about was where they are. I sort of talked about, you know, asked them about where they are next, but I think if you look at that trajectory, this is, this would be a success. And I don't think anyone down here is, is, has got ideas above their station. I think the reality of all the things you're talking about are absolutely prevalent there. And the hope is that the next one does a bit better. <laughs> you know, that's always the hope, I think. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. with this yeah, yeah, yeah. and with Ennis, yeah, and there's another, there's a documentary coming out later in the year that the lab supported. Um, we should get a, a, you know, a decent release. Um, and uh, yeah, I think over the next couple of years, there will be more work to start having conversate more conversations about what is what is Cornish cinema now that's not just Mark you know so I think what's really great is that there is a release for this film it is available and there's a kind of legit legitimacy of that you know that they had they've got a distributor behind them in terms of that space and yeah the long tail is is is, is where I think that it, it will remain in some kind of conversation over the next couple of years until people are bored of Cornwall and start thinking about Guernsey cinema or whatever it is that will be next. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. It's funny, isn't it, how you've got to sort of take mm. your turn. Um, Make the most of it. Yeah, but it's funny, isn't it? Because there was the film, 
there, there was that film that that has come out, and it's a sort of South London film. I forget what it's called now, but it's had released. It's just posters of it everywhere. Is that Rye yeah. Lane? Is it? Um, yeah, yeah, that's the one. I had never heard of it until like two minutes, but it's like featured everywhere. You know, it's got mm. got good reviews in the in national press. But it, it that it hits a. I mean, you know, and I think I don't think it's out of turn to sort of say there is as you know, there's always a zeitgeist. It's obvious, I think, what Rye Lane's zeitgeist is, whereas something like something like Long Way Back maybe considered, oh well, you know, this is just for want of a better word, sort of white people problems out in the out, out in the sticks kind of thing. Do you know? I what know I mean? what you mean, but also I th- is that is that is that? I mean, maybe I'm 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 not I'm not trying to say that. I'm just being sort of playing devil's advocate. No, I think that I think, but but how I would extend that is, I think that you know, and a long way back in wilderness are quite similar in that is that they're dramas with no conceivable commercial genre, and there's no stars in them. You know, and formally they are, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, so they're not horror movies, they're not comedies, they're not musicals, which I think Ryan Lane's a musical. You know, they have no genre hook. I mean, they, Long Way Back's a road movie, but they're not always, they're very rarely commercial. Um, but there's nobody in them, there's, there's no hook, you know, and they are, you know, so the hooks are much more subtle. They're much more for people that might know road movies or in the case of wilderness might know john cassavetes you know which are you just have to i think the thing is you just you just have to know that the reasons for making the work have to exist outside of making a profit because there's just there's you know unless you can get people in it or you can get a hook that that you know like a a horror movie like it's 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 really hard um it's really hard. So it can't be the driving force. And I don't think it is, certainly not for the films that, that we make down here. Um, it's just, it just is a nice bonus, you know, when those films can travel and, you know, that audiences get the opportunity to engage, even if the reality of getting to do so is, is really, really hard work. Yeah, great. Well, you know, really good interview. Some really interesting sort of subject matter as well. And uh, yeah, the film's available, what, just on basically... Everything sort Everything. of, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, all the usual, all the usual suspects, all the usual suspects. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Terry. That was a really interesting conversation. Uh, we've not really covered that material before uh, in terms of, yeah. No. That, that, so I, I'm really, yeah, really pleased to be able to sort of dig into a bit of that stuff. So, yeah, thanks for your thoughts and and questions on that. And thanks to um, Cy and Brett for their time. And yeah, the film is available and is well worth a watch um, for sure. There's no bonus this time for our Patreon subscribers because Dario recorded um, how would you describe it Dario a uh, stream of consciousness uh, to double bill yeah just one of my rambles um, coming in and out of uh, film screenings which is kind of interesting I, I, I don't know it seems to satisfy an itch that that you know that I, I don't have the time to sort of sit down and do I'm not a film reviewer and I don't like that sort of the tying of that format. So just being able to sort of use my phone now and tape and the audio quality is pretty decent. Um, and, you know, it fits in with some of the things that I've done. I'm still not happy with the how rambly I am. So I have to kind of have cues and, and a little bit of a shape there. Um, but interesting to uh, see those two films back to back. Yeah, I bet. So he talked about Babylon and Heat. So like a three-day... Yes double bill or whatever it was that he was in the cinema for <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah um yeah and six and six hours 40 or something you absolute masochist <laughs> um 
But yeah, an interesting, uh, yeah, so if, if you are a Patreon subscriber, uh, well worth a listen. And what I like about it, you know, I like listening to you thinking, you know, and it's it's very different to this. There's much, it's much freer. And I think it is a, a nice accompaniment to the main episodes. Um, and I've got a couple of ideas of things I'd like to do, you know, sort of solo bonusy stuff that have come out of just engaging with yours, which I think are really, really fascinating. But I did want to mention something before we close, which was you said that I, you know, you sort of outed me as a kind of whiplash fan, um, which I'm not too happy about. Um, I'll tell you why. Well, okay, I on, do then. like whiplash as a movie. Um, yeah. But it is a victim of... Um, what we might call film student bro. Oh, okay, fine. You know, so... I haven't had any whiplash, so I didn't really know that. We get it all the time. Like, literally, I cannot do an interview without it coming up, really, for an applicant who loves whiplash and Damien Chazelle in general. They love La La Land as well, which... And what... And I've been reflecting on this since you said that, you know, because I do do like... I haven't seen it since it came out, but what I liked about it was it was a film where the filmmaker's thesis was this is... This is, you know, a way to genius. This kind of harsh, which you sort of brought up in your in your bonus, you know, like the, yeah. the genius is brought out by this kind of sadistic approach. And I think the film is definitely saying that. But what I like about Whiplash, which I always felt, was that it didn't come down on whether that was a good or a bad thing. I think that there's enough in sure. Miles Teller's performance, particularly at the end, where the the question of is this worth it hangs in the air yeah in terms of like the you know the film is has presenting an idea and, and, and is not closing down on it what i find really interesting is that every film since that i've seen of Chazelle's and i haven't seen babylon does not have that ambiguity it's so yeah forceful in terms of this is my idea and it's this is this is what i'm thinking this is what i want you to think and i think that over time what I like about Whiplash is more of a promise. And I like, technically, I think it's a really well-made film, but I like the idea of, okay, this is a filmmaker who's going to present these really difficult things, but not close it off as to where they sit on it. And everything's closed since. So, yeah. Well, Babylon isn't. Okay. Interesting. So, I mean, if you can, yeah, deal with the length and the fact that, but it goes the other way where it's kind of like, you're not really sure at all what's going on in terms of a, a, a <laughs> well that might be too far the other way then yeah. yeah exactly you know what i mean and i think don't get me wrong i think whiplash whiplash is actually quite a very that's part of its issue isn't it though it's a really engaging film yeah yeah you know what i mean and and, and the, the, there is a sort of sense underneath that, that oh actually am i sort of enjoying too much this yeah. process of abuse essentially you know <laughs> yeah yeah and it, it because i think that's uh, it's all in the performance isn't it jk simmons is so yeah powerful yeah you know and that's what i kind of like about it is that sort of ambiguity but yeah i just i just wanted it on the record that you know for anybody okay. listening to the bonus i'm not some yeah. you know it's not yeah. without thought uh, but also that it's shifted because you know like a lot of a lot of filmmakers it's become it's become something we have to deal with on a daily basis. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. also, you still need to watch the Eddie. I do I need to watch like the that. Eddie. Yeah, I do need to watch the yeah. Eddie. Um, and and listening to your bonus made me think. Oh, actually, yeah, oh, that needs to go back on the list. Um, yeah. So I'm always interested in what he's doing. And there was bits of First Man which I really liked. Um, yeah. Although I just didn't think it was, again it held together as as a single thing. But hopefully that will be enough to get people to. 
plug in to the bonus before we return in a few weeks with another episode uh, where there will be another bonus. Um, and in the meantime, we will have our monthly newsletter, which will be going out um, around, yeah, around the end of the month. Cool. Yeah, looking forward to it all. Uh, I'll get back on my editing bay straight away. <laughs> back to work. Whiplash style. Cracking the whip. Um, yes. Get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, let's uh, let's wrap it up there. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, thanks, Dario, for your contributions. Thanks to our guests. And, yeah, and we will catch you again. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.